Welcome to the Sajcast. I'm Mark Austin. And I'm Stacy Roberts. And we, we are, are the, the Sons, Sons of, of Joy. Joy. You're listening to Sajcast number four. Our fourth ever Sajcast. Today's Sajcast is sponsored by the Roman Empire. Introducing the world to running water and blood sports. And I think for truth and advertising laws, it's important to point out that the Roman Empire is no longer what you call a going concern. You cannot buy their products online or even in person. But we picked them as a sponsor this week just as an object lesson to modern times. The Roman Empire was good at many things. They were innovators and adapters, and they had no problem uh, taking something that another civilization had perfected, calling it their own, improving on it, and using it to take over the known world. Slap on a new label on it. That's right. So some of the things that we think are particularly Roman may have been co-opted from somewhere else, like Christmas, which uh, corresponds to the Feast of the Saturnalia. I was going to say, I don't think of Christmas as especially Roman. Nobody does, but what they had to do was they had to integrate Christianity in a way that the pagans would approve of, and so Christmas is in December because it coincides with the Feast of the Saturnalia. The Romans were good at compromise to get what they wanted. They were, I believe, the first realists of modern civilization. And so provide us all with a good lesson that we should not stand on ceremony and pride so much that it's counterproductive. Thanks, Rome. The curious part is, having given us the Christmas holiday then, why are there no sacrificial chickens in the holiday? Ah, yes. My personal favorite feature of ancient Rome are the sacred chickens. Before battle, the local commander would have the chickens brought out and fed uh, with all due ceremony. So you know there's a ceremony, which means if there's a ceremony, there's a guidebook that describes the ceremony and the accurate placement of the chickens. The sacred chickens of Rome had someone whose job it was to uh, handle them. Chicken wranglers, as it were. And, 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 and the Goths are over there. Can we get the freaking battle started? <laughs> this one chicken just keeps... He won't stay still. He's supposed to be right here. There's an X. No. Yes, and the sacred chickens was an early Roman thing in which they would bring the sacred chickens out, they would spread food around, and if the chickens ate, the Romans were uh, confident in success in battle, and if they wouldn't eat, then um, things would not go well. And at one point there was a... And toward the end of the sacred chicken age of Rome... Uh, there was a particular Roman admiral who had the sacred chickens brought out before a battle, and they would not eat, and so he threw them overboard and said, well, if they will not eat, then they shall not swim, and all the sacred chickens died. And as I believe, Rome won the battle. So, um, And there was no Rome fried chicken that there night. There was no Rome fried chicken that night. No, I think they drank what the Romans often drank, which was the blood of their enemies. Indeed. Metaphorically speaking. So today's Sajcast, for better or worse, sponsored by the Roman Empire. So in current events this week, uh, it occurred to us that it's hot. Well, see now, hot. My uh, understanding of current events that was going to be more news oriented, but to per- to continue with that theme, we're apparently just weathermen now. We're telling people how <laughs> hot it is. Well, it's made the news that it's unusually hot. Record-breakingly hot. Newsworthy hot. Newsworthy hot. Okay, well, and uh, what with it being so hot, it causes us to wax nostalgic, or not, as the case may be, for our childhood. 
we lived in Florida where it is often hot. And um, we had parents who believed that air conditioning was a luxury, like independent thinking or new shoes. And so the heat had to get pretty high before they would turn on the air conditioning. My mother, uh, an amateur medical doctor, um, believed that air conditioning was unhealthy, that we shouldn't breathe it in, that it was better to send us outside in the heat to dehydrate, pass out, <laughs> and then die. Um, so that was my story of, of heat in childhood. I remember it being hot a great deal, and I remember thinking that being inside uh, was a definite improvement over being outside, and it's a lesson that I have kept close at hand during this most recent heat wave. Oh, yeah, because I think growing up, I was lucky if the AC was set to 79. Uh, but looking out today at the 100-degree weather that we had, which was 110-plus on the heat index, 79 is downright comfortable. <laughs> That's right. And I think that our parents would be quite proud for that perspective in that, by comparison, you're not really that bad off, are you? Like my mother said, you know, you could be dead. Yeah. And so that, I mean, there's kind of a theme there for those following along for the Sajcast, that once we escaped the shackles of our our youth and uh, and got on to college... We seem to imbibe in a number of things that were um, forbidden to us, or at least uh, out of our reach. Yeah, like a couple up. of like a couple of Amish boys released from the farm and gone <laughs> to the big city. Um, and so, yeah, the exploits of our eating have been covered, and no doubt will be covered again. I think so. Yes, but I, I remember the first place that we ended up, the first um, college apartment. For whatever reason, we were. Um, we weren't on campus. We were off campus. We were, we were off campus behind the president's house. Yes. I mean, I don't remember what the reasoning is at this point for us not being in a dorm. But Well, because... Uh, it was cheaper, maybe. It was cheaper, and and ironically, the dorm buildings that we were looking at had no air conditioning. Get out. Sad but true. That would have been a deal. I'm surprised our parents <laughs> didn't just force us to go there. It was cheaper to live off campus. <laughs> Also, as I recall, our funding sources weren't exactly assured, and in order to contract for a dorm, well, they were going to charge you all the time, and we figured that we could get cheaper rent off campus. As it turns out, we did. Well, that's true, because we ended up in a well, not a, a, a no-bedroom, not even a one-bedroom, a no-bedroom, right. what is known in the, in the industry as a studio. Yes, like we were just there to record soundtracks for an album, or... Um, <laughs> that would have been quite the album where you could get a whole band in there that's right or you know we're supposed to have some sort of pottery wheel because it was a studio yeah the drum kit's outside because it's not fitting in there right and uh so this was the was it the plaza is that the name yes of it? it was yeah, called the plaza. the plaza which made it sound to to tie back to our sponsor it sounded very you know italian plain kind of villa it did have sort of a you know, an empty square between the buildings in a, in a quad sort of way. That's right. Roman. Not a coliseum. Of, there was no, no blood sport at the plaza, but... Um, well... Some future Sajcast, spoiler alert. <laughs> blood sport at the plaza. That's quite a hashtag there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get all manner of hits now. But um, the first apartment we lived in, I guess as consolation for not having an actual bedroom... The management paid for the utilities. And I know that we chose 
that studio particularly for that reason because in later years we ended up paying our own, right? Yes. I mean, the next place we lived in the same complex. In the same complex. In the but, place, but they had figured out the metering or whatever it takes to, uh, to send you a bill and, uh, they clearly couldn't do it in our tiny little apartment. Um, so. Well, the fools. Yes. <laughs> and so we turned the air conditioner on when we got there in August. And, and we and shut so, it off. To set the scene. Oh, yeah. So this was, the, this is the same room where we described earlier with the pizzas and the water butt jugs. So and the pepperidge farm cake. Yeah. Maybe 10 or 12 feet across a bed on either side. And betwixt the beds was the AC. And it's the sort that you would still see if you go to a lesser chain uh, hotel in the south or right. a motel. <clears throat> it's so mounted the into the wall. wall unit, yeah. Below the window. Below the window. With buttons. No no digital, nothing or other. Right, but a dial. A, well, yeah. A that dial. controlled the temperature that we said all the way cold. Yeah, we didn't need the dial. <laughs> we didn't need the dial because it was either cold or off. And I think the only time it was off was when it was broken because we froze it. <laughs> Indeed. And so we were in Building K, which I believe um, I still have upstairs, uh, the K from that building, although that was... I was pilfered years later, but uh, our friends came to call this um, apartment of ours the Klondike for the K. Yes. Probably at our coaxing. But um, I was thinking, going in there now, because it was always ridiculously cold. I mean, as cold as it would get. And to the credit of that old AC unit, it got the room cold. Cold. I mean, 60s cold. cold, at least. And so it would be, you know, 100 degrees outside. Uh, people would come in, and we would be sitting covered in blankets. <laughs> well, more to the point is that Tallahassee was one of the first places that we discovered uh, systematic winter. Because where we grew up, it was mostly spring trending to summer all the time. That's true. But in Tallahassee, it actually did snow one year. And so even in winter, when people came to call at the Klondike, the air conditioner was running. It was still yeah. very cool. And um, that, as it turns out, called into question our mental stability. <laughs> and um, like most things that we thought was a good idea, uh, affected negatively our ability to meet women. Well, at least ones that were already, you know, predisposed to be chilly. That's right. It's cold in here. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> in here, it's way cold. It's always cold. I think we have the, the prototype. I'm sure if we look back and track all the records of everybody who came to the Klondike, I bet one of them was the person who did the first Sub-Zero bar, you mm -hmm. know, where you go and everything's made of ice, and they give you a parka when you walk in. I bet it started there. Yes, well, and much like the Roman Empire, we take what's lying around and use it, such as free utilities, but then we innovate, <laughs> and we turn it into essentially an ice bar. Yes, no liquor and no ladies, but it we had cold. the cold part. Yes, we yeah. had that part locked up pretty good. So um, we don't recommend that people just turn their AC on and leave it on because, as uh, as we later found out, you can actually cause them to not work by doing that, and 100-degree heat is no time for such things. Yeah, it's fine if it does that in January, but it never did. Right. It would always be on the cusp of some tennis ball fight where, you know, there were many tennis balls hurled across. Ah, yes. Worth uh, mentioning that our apartment was on the other side of the tennis courts. 
and there was always plenty of uh, lost balls lying around. We saved them in a box, and at the end of the semester, there was a cataclysmic tennis ball fight, which we won because we occupied the high ground, <laughs> and we weren't sweating. The Romans would have been proud. They would indeed. We had ample stores of ammunition, the high ground, and we were well-rested. That's right. And are perfectly climate-controlled. I'm sure if there were chickens around, they would have eaten like pigs. That's right. Well, they would have guaranteed our victory, which had been assured from the start anyway. So, yes. Anyway, there's a heat wave going on, probably everywhere that anyone's listening to us right now. Uh, ironically enough, it's cooler in Florida this week than it is here in the Midwest. Which the people who live in Florida, who are still connected to us, delight in telling us about. Oh, yes, they do. Uh, but in other news this week, uh, in sort of a Rome-themed uh, podcast, Sajcast, uh, I saw that um, Rome was having some trouble, uh, Rome being the Vatican, was having some financial trouble, and that uh, they had posted, um, much like a business, I suppose, they, they post their results. And uh, in 2011, they had major losses, uh, something to the tune of 15 million euros. That's... 14.9 if you're counting the euros to the, uh, the last drachma or whatever. Whatever the currency is today. The cent. Uh, but it, it gave us cause to think about just, you know, how that all works now. Because apparently the people of the world, you people out there, all of you, combined gave 69 billion euros to the church last year. Well, I'm assuming... Not everybody, but the Catholics did. Well, so, yeah, somebody did. Somebody the people did. out there, not the people in this room. I think it's safe to say the people in Studio Z were not responsible. We're not tithers. No. Even though it's nice, easy math. Mm -hmm. Just move the decimal. Right. And so when I see a story like this, my historical background tends to rise up and say, well... Here's an organization that's been pilfering from peasantry for a couple thousand years now, and for them to run short of cash, I'm not seeing it. But another historical, um, another advantage I bring to the Sajcast is is that most of the church's wealth is in knickknacks, tchotchkes. Well, they know. have a lot of property. They have a lot of in property. Fact, they've got property all over the place. Every church you see, for example. That's right. And so property, I guess we can set that aside because all we know of property is that it brings... A tax liability, and so that can't really well, they help. They got around that. <laughs> they did indeed. But the rest of their wealth, as it were, and not the cash, but it's all in relics and tchotchkes and gold, mm. gold and silver ornaments and fancy paintings that are part of their buildings. And so, uh, this is where I think the new iteration of the History Channel comes to their rescue because they can take some of their golden chalices and whatnot and take them down to Pawn Stars and get a nice uh, price for it because they actually keep track of the provenance of these things. Somewhere in the Vatican archives, they can tell you that that, right there, is the cup that the only British Pope, Adrian IV, drank out of back in 1183. And he backwashed like a mofo. He did indeed. So I think that the church does have a way forward to get themselves out of their current financial predicament. And... uh I'm probably not going to help them with that, other than my suggestion that they take advantage of the new format of the History Channel and turn some of them tchotchkes into cash. Oh, yeah, because the rumor is that um, every uh, every altar being 
and I'll, I'll back this up with the, I was raised in that tradition. It's not just a rumor I heard in the street. <laughs> That's good. But, uh, yeah, if you've ever been to a mass, the priest will kiss the altar round about the center, um, at least at one point during the mass. And the rumor is that there is a bone, uh, embedded in the, uh, the altar itself. And at least of a saint, but generally someone of, of, you know, famous stature. background. Stature. Yeah. Especially if you go to, say, Rome itself or in Europe, where they're much more likely to have, you know, maybe even an apostle. You yes. never know. Part of the, part of the reasons we, uh, embark, and I say we, I mean our, ancestors embarked on the crusades was to retrieve many of these bones from the holy land and bring them back where they could be embedded in altars and uh, so i think that you know you can uh, it's a selling point to the uh well not the pond stars maybe but the uh the diggers yeah the american pickers oh the pickers yeah sorry it's pickers diggers something uh it, nothing at all historical about because it. it's nice to have an altar in your back room but if there's a bone in it oh. and it's a bone whose history can be proven by mm. ancient documents, then there's really no question. They have to give you your price. Indeed. Mm -hmm. So that's one way for the church moving forward, because uh, we're expecting that part of the reason for their losses, and apparently for the last five years they've uh, been in the red, uh, was they have had a number of payouts for the uh, missteps of the church personnel with respect to young people, boys in particular. Apparently it's a costly endeavor. And not only is it costly, but it it disinclines the faithful to put up their hard-earned coin to pay off lawsuits. Yeah, you would think, you know, when it comes time to uh, pass the uh, basket, is that the phrase? Uh, well, I think it's passing the plate. The plate, yeah, that's the one. It was a basket, literally, but yes, passing the plate around. It's... Yeah, it's somewhat disincentivizing to say, we need this to cover, you know, the legal fees that we have to pay out to all the young boys who are now old boys who suit our pants well, off. I know, I know that I wasn't raised in the tradition, but you make it sound like the church is a great big explainer of things. <laughs> and I'm not really seeing that because they don't really tell you what it's for. No, they did. There, they, were, there were generally two play passings uh, in a service, and... Oh, if memory serves, it was the latter that was quite specific uh, about what it was to be used for. And generally that was, you know, um, one is upkeep and maintenance, which is, I think, the one they don't talk about. you got to keep the air on for the no, paper, right. that yeah. kind of thing. But I, the other was generally for the sick and dying or for alms for the poor. Right. And there were poor boxes, and there still are, on the walls. And those are specifically, at least if you're an accountant, they're alms for the poor. Yeah. Well, I don't know so how they distribute those, I don't know. Well, and I guess that makes me nostalgic for the old days, where they pass the plate around so that they can go and burn the heretics of Westphalia. <laughs> we need more tar. And I gotta say, if I was in a mass, and they told me that they were passing the plate around so they could go burn the heretics of Westphalia, <laughs> or attend the Diet of Worms, I'd throw some in there. Because that would, that would, that would prove that the priest in question had a little bit of historical knowledge, and was having a little fun with us, and he would definitely get my money. How much more to watch? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think there were other things that happened this week, but uh, we're going to leave the heat wave and uh, the troubles, the financial troubles of the Vatican, and uh, call that uh, current events. 
So moving on to project updates, uh, we had a couple of interesting updates that happened around our projects this week. It was actually kind of the same interesting update, but around two different things. Looking forward, as we like to do, being planners, uh, we know that at some point, uh, Lord willing, Ishtallah, if, if Allah wills it, we will finish a book. Can Allah will anything in a Roman Empire-themed Sajcast that talks about the church? All right, well, uh, Zeus wills it. Or Jupiter. Or Jupiter. Or anybody, <laughs> any of those guys. Yes. But uh, should it come to pass... Ah, there you go. <laughs> that, ...that we finish our bloody book, uh, pun perhaps intended... Um, we decided that there are, and we have investigated a number of these, but a, a number of ways of getting the word out. You know, Twitter, Facebook, and all that are, are fairly obvious. But it occurred to us that uh, there's a sort of a whole system, a network, if you will, out there to provide people with um, advertisement. Mm -hmm. And I speak, of course, of Google and Bing. And so, as an experiment... Because uh, we figure it's best to, uh, what was this, from the 300, it's best to bleed on the training field so you don't bleed in battle. Absolutely. So we we decided to, to screw around with Google and Bing with respect to Zombie Guy, so the, uh, the web comic property that we have. And wanted to see kind of how far we could get on two bucks a day, or a buck 75 actually to be more specific. So I don't know if our listeners have ever tried to advertise on any of the search engines of the world. Um, it's interesting experience, reasonably easy. And I have to say, my prejudice, of course, working at Microsoft is for Bing. Google was especially good at a couple of things, which is if you were a small business owner, it would have been brilliant. I was trying to advertise a webcomic. Not as good. So... One of the things that it did was it asked me, of course, all the billing information and, you know, which companies providing this ad. And so I put all that in. I put in the copy, which is America's uh, most lovable zombie. And so what we got was a little tiny banner ad that said Zombie Guy. That's X-O-M-B-E. Zombie Guy, uh, America's most lovable zombie. And then a push pin with Studio Z in it on the Google map and my phone number. Wow. Which I didn't think was helpful. No. Just call me and I'll read one to you. Yeah. Imagine, <laughs> if you will, a zombie in a bar with a fly circumnavigating his part. Have I read program. earlier ones to you? The, the fly is the whole thing. you got to understand. Yeah. I guess we'll have to go back. Um, whose minutes really are applying here? Who, who's, whose dime are we on <laughs> when you're calling me based on the pushpin in Google? But if you were, you know, Acme Plumbing... That's perfect, right? Because th there I am on the map. That's my phone number. That's all you need. To, you know, uh, we fix pipes. Right. And, and it means that you can stop looking. I mean, that's right. what Google is all about. Google yeah. isn't about the search. It isn't about the journey. It's about when you can stop looking and get on with whatever it is you're there to get on with. True enough. Yeah, so anyway, we got the that part of it done. Um, I think I managed to get my phone number off there and uh, create a couple that actually had images and some other things. Um, and then if you're not familiar with how ads get on the internet, listen up. So you don't buy ad space on websites. You um, participate in an auction for it. So it's open to bid. You bid on it. And if you're the high bidder, you get posted. 
So you get to pick the site you're bidding on? Well, you get to pick the keywords. Okay. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you wanted to go to, uh, I don't know, uh, the New York Times and pay them directly, yeah, you'll end up on their site. But in the generic Google sense, and there are literally millions of websites out there that, you know, have Google ad space that they have no, no idea, no control over who lands there. Google just dumps ads, right? And so how that happens is through an auction. And I'll say that both, uh, both Bing and Google were very good at, um, kind of, well, Bing was better at it, but they were both giving you a sense that if you bid a nickel, don't expect anything, right? So, um, on Bing, it ended up running, uh, 20 to 30 cents was that, that got landed. And on Google, it was a little higher, uh, 30 and 40 cents. And depending on maybe what you're advertising, it'll be even higher. So if you want to start a new shoe business and you want to advertise on the Facebook or wherever, and you're going to compete with Zappos, you're paying a buck a hit easy because you've got to outbid them if you want to have any say in the world, right? So that was interesting to me that you couldn't just say, you know, I want to buy 10 ads. You say, this is what my budget is per day which was two bucks <laughs> or per month. They'll, they'll work it out for you if you like. And then you can uh, kind of go for broke if you're doing the monthly, which is get me as many hits today until the money's gone. Or you can spread it out more or less evenly um, across the days. So that was how we went about that. And uh, with Bing, it was a little easier in that they didn't try to put my phone number out there. They were actually asking if we wanted to, so that was good. Um, but what we found was, and I guess this isn't really a surprise, is that Bing kind of being the lesser known, um, lesser visited search engine, uh, was cheaper and produced more results for the same money. So what we found was, um, we've got, well, I'd have to do the math. Somewhere between 30 and 40% more clicks for our dollars there than we did. Well, you know, and we're talking two bucks here. So <laughs> not a lot of clicks, but there was a tremendous spike in zombie guy traffic, uh, based on that. And so we've learned a bunch of things about how that'll work in the future. And, uh, for our readers out there, our listeners, you know, that's how that works. So it, if you it wanna... means that, it means that internet marketing is attainable. Yeah, absolutely. And especially enter, uh, attainable if you're not selling anything. Bear in mind, when you get to zombieguy.com, you laugh, you love, you leave. <laughs> there's, there's nothing to buy. Right. There's no tithing involved. There's no tithing involved. And marketing people would say, this is a dumb idea because we're not going to make anything. But it was, again, just an experiment to kind of see how this worked and uh, to get the zombie guy love out there. But, that, yeah, that's how the world works. You you bid on it, and um, if you've got five bucks and you want to get your Facebook page more hits, yeah, that's one way to do it. Right. So, interesting. Yeah, that is. So, we've come to the review section of our Sajcast. And, and because... I have, a, I have a feeling, based on the thematic Roman thing that we've had so far. I should expect some more Roman stuff. And that is indeed spot on. Because here at the Sajcast, we like to stick to our themes. And so, and we like to pay proper homage to our sponsors. 
And so we like to talk about things that we think our sponsors would enjoy listening to if they hadn't been out of power for a couple of millennia. So this week, I'm going to review the History of Rome podcast, which can be found at historyofrome.typepad.com. It is a podcast by a fellow named Mike Duncan, who, as it turns out, is not a scholar of Roman history. He's not a professor anywhere. At least not in any economic sense, right? Uh, right. No, no creds. No credits. Uh, he, um, he started young. He read Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. He got hooked, uh, much like I did. It wasn't in my major either. But, um, you really can't study any other part of history of the world without, without ending up cheek by jowl with the Romans. And so I was looking for something to do at the gym, which, uh, as part of my lifelong pursuit of not dying, I go to the gym, I try to go to the gym, every day. And I was bored pretty quick with the picking things up and putting them down, and so I discovered podcasts, and I started doing a search through history, I found the History of Rome podcast, and I started to listen to it. Actually, I think this is my fault, if we're going to blame, if there could be a theme in each podcast to blame me for something. I think I got you started on this because I ended up uh, giving you some books on... Oh, yeah. Courses on tape. Courses right? on or, tape, right. College courses. Because as I tell my children, when they say, Dad, what are you listening to? I say, well, children, you know, you never stop learning. And so <laughs> here we are. But I uh, I went from the DVDs that you gave me that were college lectures on tape, and I listened to them while driving around this great land of ours. And then when I finally got to the gym, I discovered that I could get them through podcasts on iTunes, and I went and found The History of Rome. And I uh, subscribed to it, and every week there was an episode. They're about 23 minutes long, which is about as long as I can last on a treadmill. <laughs> and so I got to uh, do something at the gym other than watch the news, which is depressing and just makes you want to go home. So Mike Duncan, History of Rome, and i got to say, like most podcasts, they get better as you go along. And as, spoiler alert, they're done, right? Oh, this yes. Is, this um, is complete. Like the Roman Empire, the History of Rome podcast is defunct. It is over. They did 179 episodes, and he stopped in 476 AD when Rome fell. Now, Fair enough. I don't mean to criticize, but I'm not sure that's a good place to stop. <laughs> but you know what? It's his podcast, and we'll let him do it. But for our ADD friends out there, you can get this, lock yourself in a room, and listen until it's done, and you're done. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. Absolutely. And, we, and, and it is good that, that, uh, it does come to an end because, um, much like life, it has meaning only because it ends. And of the podcasts that I have listened to about history, this is the best one because it is, uh, concise. Uh, there's not too much podcaster intervention. And, um, uh, he does give his opinions. Mike Duncan gives his opinions on things, but he does Stick to the facts. He tells us what he knows for sure and what he doesn't know. He tells us what sources are available. And Rome and the history of Rome is a compelling story. So if you're saying someone's listening to us and they totally hate this format, they might like the history of Rome. They might like the history of Rome, you know, where you, where you, where you, where you marshal your facts, you organize them in some kind of coherent fashion, write them down, and then read them into a microphone with no personal injection, as it were. So, um, and so the important part of the history of Rome is the things to take away from it. Um, much like in Battlestar Galactica, where they repeat the phrase, all this has happened before and will happen again, there's a lot of modern times in the history of Rome 
and you can look at some things that Rome did well and some things that Rome did badly and say, wait a second, I think that happened last week somewhere in America, <laughs> or Europe for that matter. And so as a lesson to those who lead our current empire, I would say that do a little studying because I think that they've come up with this before. And so next week when President Obama has some chickens in the Rose Garden to see if they will eat until they are full as a harbinger of victory in the fall elections, um, I'm going to say, well, you know what? They already did that. Well, and I think it was, well, many people have probably said that we're the new Roman Empire, but it was Eddie Izzard who said that we're the new Roman Empire, and that means we get to look forward to vomitariums. Yes. And um, i got to say, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, infighting among the powerful of, our, of the empire, a lot of backstabbing, a lot of betrayal, and a lot of selling out for the sake of short-term expediency. One of the things that could be said about the late Roman Empire is that every senator had a price and could be bought. And oh. the price got lower as time went on. <laughs> Indeed. So, well, yeah, I guess we haven't gotten to that part of our empire yet. And I'll make another Saj Cash prediction that uh, we will not have a Pax Romana here in the U.S. We will not have a thousand years of peace, not even close. No. I don't think we had really hardly any. Well, and that's because when it comes to a thousand-year peace, you got to want it. You have to think that uh, well, peace is... Well, you have to pwn it, too, and it being the whole world. Well, that's That's true. one way to get it done. Yes, but I think at the same time, uh, decisions back in the midst of the Roman Empire were made in pursuit of peace and stability because they knew that their power wasn't just at the point of a sword, but it came from... Not being at war all the time. Not fighting constantly like um, our current political system is bogged down in. So, uh, and uh, to uh, bring it closer to the founding of our own little empire, the founding fathers were quite adept at compromise for the good of the whole. And so they were quite good at uh, looking at the long view and saying that uh, we're going to let things slide for a little while and maybe just... Uh, Try and achieve stability first before we get all fancy. And um, it was a lesson learned early and often by the Romans. But to wrap up the review, the history of Rome is worth listening to. All 179 episodes. And I say, hang in there. Because <laughs> uh, the first few are a little slow going. But once you get in it, um, you will not do other things for the sake of listening to the episodes. So... Much well like done. the Sajcast. Much if, like this one, yes. If, if the first four or five episodes are a little slow, hang in there. Well, let's not prejudice the <laughs> listeners. But I would say that um, uh, by the time you get midway through it, this podcast, The History of Rome, is one that you will put off other things to listen to. And that's uh, it's a mark of quality. And I'm looking forward to Mike Duncan's next project because I think it will be just as fine as this one. Cool. So, for um, my part of the review section this week, I thought I would uh, add a new section to the Sajcast, a sort of a subsection into reviews, uh, around Kickstarter. So, for those of you who don't know what Kickstarter is, let me backpedal a little and explain the whole Kickstarter concept. Um, and then we'll go from, uh, from there as to why uh, it might be worth visiting this every once in a while. 
So what Kickstarter is, is the world's largest funding platform for creative projects, which tells you not that much. But what it, uh, what it, what it is and what it was designed to do, if you think about this, um, purely for a moment anyway, purely in terms of building things. So if you wanted to make the next Guga, the next widget, the, uh, the next, you know, can opener for cats, what Kickstarter does is it's a website where you could go out, explain that you want to make the next can opener for cats, and it's going to cost you 32000 and that's factoring your R&D and your production costs and SPCA lawsuits that are bound to happen. All that and, stuff. Uh, new cats all the time. Well, yeah. Uh, you lay all that out, and you basically say, people in the world, at least Kickstarter community, uh, would you be so kind as to help me reach my goal? So it's a place where you go to say, I have an idea. And uh, oftentimes it's a physical idea, like a physical product, and I need this much money to get there. And what Kickstarter will do is uh, let people offer you money. And so you say, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, why would they do that? And generally speaking, there's something in it for you. So if you back a project, and that's the, the parlance, there's different um, backing uh I don't want to say gifts, but uh, there are different levels of things that you can get, and this varies wildly by uh, by the product that you're looking at. Right, and much like, say, public radio, when you pledge something, and Kickstarter works on a pledge system, yes, you get something in return for a pledge of a certain amount. Right. So you, yeah, the the minimum uh, I think for any pledge anywhere is a buck, and generally you get goodwill. Um, sometimes you'll get a sticker or your name on a website or something. Um, and then the pledges generally jump 10, 20, 30, 50, uh, and, and up from there. And so, um, you might get for 20, let's say 25 bucks, you might get the, uh, cat can opener. You might get a, the first run, right? So you'll get your own cat can opener, be the first one, your cat will be the end of the it's cat friends, that sort of thing. Um, and maybe at the $500 level, you could become one of their distributors. And so you get a, a lot of them and you could resell them on through or whatever. But to back up again, that's just if it's a physical project. Now, Kickstarter does not limit itself to just physical projects. Um, another thing to mention about how Kickstarter works is it's timed. So unlike a pledge drive on PBS, which seems never to end, um, I think the longest you can go is 60 days, maybe 90, but most of them are around 30. And what happens is you say, I need five grand in 30 days. And if day 30 rolls around and you have 4,999, your project is not funded. And everybody who pledged owes you nothing. In fact, they, they're not even charged. But if it, you get 5,001, everybody who um, backed the project, uh, they automatically... Uh, have their money deducted via Amazon. Nice little system there. And uh, and then from then, generally, the project will tell you to expect your, your cat camp or in two months or whatever it happens to be. But there's lots of different categories of projects. And so there's everything. Uh, and I've, I have to say, I've backed a lot of projects um, over the last couple months. So, I mean, some of the ones I've backed were um, a production of Waiting for Godot. In Portland, Oregon, because I'm a fan of 
waiting for Godot. And uh, at the, the level that I pledged, I got two tickets to go see Waiting for Godot and a bunch of pictures. And so the producer actually emailed me because it's that kind of community, pretty small. And he said, what show do you want to come see? <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> this weekend's shows are, oh, I don't know, the whole width of the country <laughs> apart from where I am. And so I just wish you well and send me the pics because I'd love to see them and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, books uh, of all sorts and stripes, art books, comic books, novels, um, art performances. I saw something yesterday, uh, which I won't get into all the details, but it was one of these kind of offbeat art projects where someone was creating a giant, well, giant's relative in this sense, uh, whale, which I assume would be out of um, like paper mache, but not whale size, just bigger than this table kind of whale. And they were going to float it down a river in Indiana from one town to the next and then burn it. I didn't back that project. I'm not saying it's a bad project. I'm just saying that's the sort of breadth of things you might encounter. Okay. So uh, novelists going on a reading tour, they will ask for the money to get hotels and gas to get wherever they're going to do the reading. Um, and so what, what happens here, or at least if you've not encountered Kickstarter, you may see some jokes around that Kickstarter is often widely abused, and it is oftentimes abused. Um, they do seem to check when you put the project up, but you know if you sent the money in and they never really gave you your cat can opener, you might be screwed. Um, and even the onions made quite a bit of fun of uh, this. So I don't know how long it'll be in the world. So it's a it's an ephemeral thing, but we figured we'd talk about it. And uh, what I wanted to bring up this week was the desktop ballista. So for those of you who don't know what a ballista is, it's um, it's a siege engine, a Roman siege engine. Oh, look at that. We stitched that thread right in there. <laughs> and in keeping with our theme, it was invented by the Greeks and later improved by the Romans. Yes, and we're looking at the improved version. Of course we are. In desktop form. And so what you have here, um, if you've never seen one, you know, well, check it out on the, on the website here or, or at Kickstarter. We'll link to that. But it's basically like a crossbow at a larger scale. And so uh, if you can imagine a crossbow that was maybe uh, 8 or 10 feet across that several Roman soldiers would stand at the back of, load these big bolts, um, and then fire them off. It's mounted on like what would be a tripod, I guess. And these were the bunker busters of their day. They That's could right. go, you know, clean through your shield like it wasn't there. Yep. Um, so anyway, the um, the goal of the desktop ballista is to raise $1,600, which isn't too bad. I mean, as some of these need tens and thousands and more than that. Um, and I'm not going to tell you whether or not they're going to meet their goal. I'll let you go out and explore that for yourselves. But they have 12 days to go. And so if you were interested in getting a ballista of your own, you could do that. Well, and let's let's be clear. You are not getting a full-size siege engine. No, it's a desktop version. Okay. That's hence the desktop ballista. So this is something that would fit on your desktop. Um, let me see if we can see exactly how big it is. Uh, I don't know if we can, but from the uh, the video and the models, it looked like it was maybe six inches total. 
And for 30 bucks, if you offered them 30 bucks, you'll get your own uh, ballista. And you can build that up. Uh, and it fires toothpicks. So you can shoot lemons and limes and oranges and whatever else you'd like to shoot with it. Um, and it comes with some foam-tipped uh, toothpicks, basically, so that mom won't be too upset. Mom, you're talking about weaponizing the desktop of every cubicle <laughs> dweller in America. You're talking about Dilbert, writ large, <laughs> now with siege engines on his desk. There's going to be shenanigans in corporate America if this project goes through. Yep. And so, uh, again, for a buck, um, what do you get here? You, I think you get their praise. And, uh, there's a couple people that have already done that. For 20 bucks, you get a t-shirt that says, I kickstarted a desktop ballista. And uh, the prizes, or the pledges, I should say, go all the way up to 200 or more, which is a deluxe ballista. And if you're in Denver, you can go out and see them, and they'll take you to dinner, and during dinner, they'll probably shoot you with a ballista. <laughs> no. A desktop one or a full-size one? Well, one can only imagine they must have a full-size one. Yes, but I would not pay $200 for that. <laughs> no, no. That's probably considerable. See, now what they need is they need a pledge level of $1,000 or more in which they will employ a full-size ballista in the siege of your choice. It's like, well... I am besieging my girlfriend in her trailer because she won't talk to me, <laughs> and I'm going to need a full-size ballista for you to get through her defenses and have her see the light of day. And we could have a conversation that would begin with her saying, Oh my God, what is that? Oh, that's a ballista. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I, I could imagine a full-size ballista that fired desktop ballistas yes. in a cluster bomb sort of way. <laughs> Which, if the Romans were still around... You can bet that they would have come up with that long ago. Yeah, they would have tried it. And they would have vanquished the heretics of Westphalia with them. So anyway, if you're interested in getting a desktop ballista, uh, head out to Kickstarter, follow our links. Uh, or if you're just interested in the whole idea of Kickstarter, I'll, uh, I'll keep an eye on the website, as I often do, and bring back updates. Uh, this particular one will uh, either be funded or not. On Tuesday, July 17th, so 12 days from the recording of the podcast. If you're listening to it two years from now, well, it either did or it didn't. Well, if you're listening to it two years from now, you might just check the cubicle of the guy next door <laughs> and see if he's got a desktop ballista and some sort of uh, loading system for his toothpicks. And do the frilly kind fly any better than the non-frilly kind? I can imagine as follow-up, there's special loading you know, uh, devices, magazines, if you will. That'll be later. If that was successful, they'll have later ones where they can... Right, because no one wants to load their ballista one toothpick at a time. No. And and they did have the, the premium ballista kit, which was included uh, brass fittings for some of the metal bits and horsehair instead of a shoestring. Oh, uh, yes. The so. Emperor Vespasian's ballista. I think it actually said for history buffs. Let me see if that's right. It was... Here, let's see... Or I just made it. Actually, I think it was in the video. And I gotta say that there has to be something for history buffs to do now that the History Channel has gone off the rails. And so shooting things with toothpicks would be an expression of our ire and disdain. Well, and this is certainly safer than building your own pumpkin-tossing trebuchet. That is true. Although there's some fun there, too. Well, that will be in our medieval siege-themed <laughs> Sajcast to be announced. Yes, we'll have a whole Sodge cast to help you understand and notice at a distance the difference between a catapult and a trebuchet. It's good to know. <laughs>
so we're finally on to food porn. Food porn. And so food porn is where we like to talk about the best thing I ate this week. And so uh, did you want to go first? Well, I can. Um, I tend to stay closer to home, and I certainly don't sit around not watching the History Channel, steeped in envy that you travel all over the world eating at various places, and I generally tend to go where I can get to in a few minutes. And so uh, my food porn this week is about Montoya's, the best Mexican restaurant within a five-mile radius of my house. <laughs> but to be fair, I think it's the best Mexican restaurant in a wider radius. I just don't get out that much. But here's the thing. There are two things at Montoya's that are interesting. Well, we me. should back up a little because Montoya's here in the greater Cincinnati area is someone of some repute. Was it not? A sports figure? I'm not certain about that. I thought I thought I heard at one point that the owner was a former Bengal. Well, that could very well be. But Some I, research for the next Sodgecast. Indeed. And and this is, uh, if you listen to the most recent Sodgecast about Whackburger, you are noticing things about the restaurant and the establishment, and I'm just wondering where they're keeping the food and how long <laughs> it's going to take them to bring it out. And the next time I go, I'll be armed with a desktop ballista, and I can fire toothpicks at them until they bring <laughs> me my salsa. So, speaking of salsa, at Montoya's, they have three kinds, and I refer to them as the chunky and the non-chunky, and some of them are hot, but the best way to do it is to mix them all together. Yeah, there's a mild, there's a a hot, and like a salsa crudo, chunky, but drier. Yeah. So, we tend to have to mix them all together, and that really is just to tide us over until the queso con chorizo dip comes out. (laughs) And so, I think what really did it for Montoya's is the use of chorizo in nearly everything. And chorizo, for those of you who do not know, is a Mexican sausage. It is super fantastic. It is very oily, and it goes quite well with cheese. I think the Romans invented it. It's entirely possible (laughs) that they did. And if they didn't invent it, I'm sure that they executed the guy who did so that they could steal his idea. If they were around today, they would take claim. Absolutely. So the queso con chorizo is... uh, the first, the first part of any meal at Montoya's. Well, and I have to say, uh, as you left out, one of the key ingredients is it's it's a white cheese. It's not a nice. cheddar yellow, which is so common here in the Midwest. This is a white cheese, and I, that impressed me because they're authentic. They're, yes, and then they dump the che- the chorizo right on top. And there's a little oily puddle, and you get to mix it. So if you just wanted to have a big scoop of chorizo in your mouth, <laughs> you could. But the other people at the table would shoot you in the eye with their desktop ballista-fired toothpicks, and the dinner would go very badly from then on. Yes. So you're going to need extra chips because you're trying to make that last, the oily puddle and the white cheese. Um, they call it queso con chorizo. You should absolutely get it. And the other thing, and I always get the same thing at a Mexican restaurant because culinarily I have been accused of being, I don't know, repetitive. But I know what I like. And I tend to eat it over and over again, but they make a fajita called the Huracan that has steak, chicken, and, you guessed it, chorizo, mixed in with vegetables, which is... Does it have shrimp as well? No, it does not have shrimp. Okay. But it could, but it does not. Uh, and uh, and all your, your bell vegetables, your onions, your red peppers, your green peppers, and since we've determined in previous Sajcasts that vegetables are indeed important, the Huracan is the perfect dish. And it may be the antidote for cheese, <laughs> which you have eaten uh, quite a lot of if you're following our path to success 
at Montoya's. Yes. And and they have many other fine things on the menu. I have to say, I've explored uh, not not far and wide, but but pretty far. And uh, it's I have to say, it's Tex-Mex um, with a, a more authentic flair. It's not uh, they don't have brain tacos on the menu or uh, lingua or anything like that. <laughs> and that's good. But uh, yeah, I, I I support your uh, your recommendation. And that is Montoya's Mexican restaurant. Is technically in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. Exit 186. Exit 186. If you're driving. On I-75, 71. Yes. So, or south. It is attainable in our area. And it's quite reasonable. I uh, yes, it is. It is quite reasonable. And Staff is um, friendly. And they also have Diet Mountain Dew. Well, that was the second part. Yes, because Diet Mountain Dew is the fuel of our particular empire, because without the caffeine... And the bromated vegetable oil. And, no doubt, the scurvy-fighting powers of the citrus contained therein... Second ingredient. None of our product projects would really get off the ground. And so, one of the things that got us in the door at Montoya's was... They'll bring you Diet Mountain Dew over and over again. And then, oh my god, there's chorizo everywhere. <laughs> so we recommend that you go and uh, plan to stay for a while. So, for the best thing that I ate this week, um, also begins with a letter M. Not to introduce a new theme, but to the food porn section, perhaps. Um, and that was, I had dinner at Morton's Steakhouse. And so, anybody who knows uh, Morton's of Chicago will not be shocked to learn that that probably placed pretty high on the things I ate that week. Uh, and to talk a little bit about why I ended up there, because this isn't some place I go every Thursday or anything. Uh, I have been traveling for a number of weeks, as was covered in previous Sajcast, and I'd come back, and I think this was just after the other Sajcast, because I had just returned, and um, having been away for so long, I decided that uh, sort of as a, a peace offering to my girlfriend, I would take her for the, well, one of the finest steaks that you can get in the Cincinnati area. And I haven't been to all the fine steakhouses. It's a goal. To be true. So I don't want to say this is it. But this is certainly one of the best steakhouses that you can get pretty much anywhere in the country. So um, this is uh, in downtown Cincinnati, um, overlooking Fountain Square. So it's a nice place to go. I know you've been there. I have. On a birthday, perhaps. Yes. Or nearabouts. For those of you who um, haven't been there, this is uh, what would be classified as a premium steakhouse. So at a premium steakhouse, you pay for everything. So if you order a steak, you get a steak. You don't get potatoes. You might get some bread. They might throw you some bread if you look nice. But uh, if you wanted asparagus, side of spinach, nothing comes with anything. Everything's a la carte. And so the steak that we chose to share was a double-cut porterhouse. And so the porterhouse, uh, also known as a T-bone, uh, back in the day, is a steak which is separated uh, by by that T-bone. One side is a filet mignon, and the other side is a New York strip. So it's a nice pairing, and I'm very fond of a New York strip. And my girlfriend, um, as many ladies are, has a thing for the filet mignon, and so it seemed like a good pairing. Uh, two and a half inches thick or so. Check the picture. I wish I had put um, like a quarter next to it so you could really get a sense of how ridiculously oversized this thing was. One of the things that makes 
the Mortons and, and most premium steakhouses, to be fair, the, their experience to be so special is that they have incredibly hot ovens. Um, watching the Food Network as often as you do, you know what a salamander is. Mm-hmm. And so they have essentially a salamander, probably modified a bit, but they're running between, tw- uh, these steakhouses in general are running between 1,200 and 1,500 degree ovens. And so really, there's no other way to run a business and have uh, turning over your tables more than once a night if you're not running multi, you know, over a thousand degrees, because to cook two and a half inches of steak in a traditional oven, you know, it's all night. It's just too much. So what that ridiculous temperature does is it sears the outside layer so you don't lose any of the precious juices, and they all go to the inside, and, and obviously it cooks it quite quickly. You get a, a lovely char on the outside, uh, which is super yummy, and the the middle being whatever doneness you require. Don't order well done, please. We also enjoyed, let me think, uh, some salad and a soup. It was a lobster bisque. I remember remarking that it tasted of lobster. Like, first taste, I was like, holy crap, there's lobster in there. <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, that's a nice bisque. Yes, it's... Uh... It was like the lobster came out and pinched it in the nose to say, wow, there's which, lobster in there. Which is a point to be made about premium steakhouses is that everything they do, even not steak, mm. is done very well. Yes. And so Morton's is as much about the premium experience. Oh, certainly. As yeah. it is anything else. Uh, it is, everything is done with class. Everything is done well. And you can pretty much, you're not going to go into Morton's and have a phenomenal steak and a lousy lobster bisque. It's all going to be good. Or l- lousy service for that matter. I mean, if you've never been to one, uh, if you've never been to a fancy restaurant, you might not have experienced a crummer, which is a little device that the waiters carry. Um, kind of looks like the letter L if you looked at it in profile. Uh, kind of a right angle thing, and it's made of metal, a couple inches long, and they use it to just run along the table and scoop up your crumbs from your bread or whatever made a crumb. So yeah, it's that it's that level of experience. Um, so along with dinner. Uh, there was a giant loaf of bread and some amazing butter. Well, let me stop right there because part of the food porn section is the notion of quality and why it matters. Because I know that my mother would say, oh, good Lord, you went and paid $36 for a baked potato? $140 for a steak? I could have made that at home. Because she said that all the time. In her case, she was factually inaccurate as well as philosophically. And so... Part of what we're trying to get across here at the Sajcast is that quality matters. We're not saying go to Morton's every week, but be aware that life has within it occasions that can be done properly and well, and dinner at Morton's is definitely one of them. Yeah, and I would, I mean, to, to further that point, and, and not at all in any way to pick on Outback Steakhouse, uh, although, interestingly, I didn't, haven't looked recently, but the first few years I was here, I, I was just out of curiosity. I looked at the best of list, and Outback Steakhouse was the winner for steakhouses in this in this region. So, well, and that, I mean that does go to a peculiarity of Cincinnati. Yes, compared to other regions of the country, we don't have much of a food identity. Well, yeah, that's a whole other sidecast. It is a whole other sidecast. But when you look at the best of in Cincinnati, uh, one year when they did their best hamburger list, McDonald's was on there. Yeah, and it made us wonder. Is there seriously no local burger <laughs> yeah. joint wrong with these anywhere people? that makes a better burger than a Big Mac? 
You're saying that either the best you could come up with was a drive-through burger. Um, it's either lazy reporting on the part of the reporters, <laughs> or they're just not trying hard enough. Because in our travails here, we have discovered quite a number of excellent burger joints. But yes. I digress. Yeah. So anyway, to, to give full props to Outback Steakhouse, no rules, just raw it in you know, that place. Uh, because I have a thing for their Bloomin' Onion, and they have a decent steak, and there have been many a week uh, on the road where that was the best thing I ate that week. So I don't mean to knock them at all. Uh, in fact, just the opposite. I want to say that they're a pretty good place uh, in the mid-range steak places. Don't go to low-end steak places uh, like Ponderosa and some others. Uh, don't no. get a steak at a Waffle House. Yeah. You can. You can. We don't recommend it. Golden Corral. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, anyway, if you look at what you spend at an Outback Steakhouse on a given outing, you and your gal, how much is that going to run you? Fifty, sixty dollars. Yeah, fifty, sixty bucks without any sweat, right? Um, and that's assuming you know the, the full complement of a meal. I will say that the meal that we had at Morton's was nigh unto two hundred bucks, right around there. So what that means is for roughly three trips to Outback, you can have one trip to Morton's. Right. And I would suggest to our listening audience, if you've not been to Ruth Chris or Morton's or um, Smith & Walensky or whatever your local high-end steakhouse is, consider giving up the blue onion for three times or two times. And on the third time that you give it up, go try that. Yes. And see have, if you don't think, eh. have have the Morton's experience. Feel like the emperor of all Rome for one day. <laughs> there you go. So restitch that thread back in. You know, I don't think they would have noticed I was restitching unless you pointed it out. <laughs> oh, they're 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 a wily. Bunch they're paying attention. Um, yeah. So anyway, big steak. There was some asparagus, a creme brulee cheesecake, which was really just a cheesecake with. Um, Sugar that got uh, toasted on top. I don't know if there was any real brulee association other than that. Uh, but it was all remarkable, delightful. It's the sort of place, and my girlfriend pointed this out to me as we got there, that if you're wearing dark clothes, which she was, I think we both were, they take away the white napkins and they bring you a black one, lest lint should get on you. That you can see. I mean, certainly black lint, but you won't notice. So that's the sort of experience we're talking about when we talk about a premium experience. So, you know. Um, and here on the Satchcast, we want you, our listeners, to have those kinds of experiences so that you can tell quality. There's a saying, see Rome, then die. I think it's one of those. Skip skip the Outback twice or wherever, you know, TGI Fridays or wherever your culinary experiences take you and go somewhere top end. Show your gal a good time. And see if you don't enjoy that and think that you maybe want to do that a couple times a year. Absolutely. And so I think that brings us to the end of this week's Sajcast. So, sponsored by the Roman Empire. Yep, they introduced the world to running water and blood sports. Look them up. <laughs>